And we have a fantastic first session for you on endoscopy under the spotlight, what's new. We want to hear your questions. We're going to take some questions after each talk. Just put your hand up. There's a lot of roving microphones, and we have the wonderful cube. Um, so our first speaker um, on endoscopy under the spotlight is John O'Hoare. Uh, many of you will know John O. He's a uh, consultant gastroenterology, gastroenterologist at St. Mary's, um, and he's senior lecturer at Imperial College. And he's been instrumental in the uh, recent British Society of Gastroenterology guidelines on lower GI bleeding. So, Jono, please inform us. Okay, uh, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here, having been a registrar and fellow at St. Mark's. Um, I think I was at the first frontiers nearly 20 years ago as a registrar. So, uh, I'm going to talk to you about lower GI bleeding and the recent BSG guideline. I hail from the wonderful St. Mary's Hospital, uh, the second uh, best hospital in northwest London, obviously. In 1928, uh, the penicillin mould flew through that window. 91 years later, my ward is in the same uh, old building. Uh, we finally managed to get a new endoscopy unit so our bleeders don't get stuck in the lifts, which is good. Uh, so I'm going to talk to you about the National Lower GI Bleeding uh, Guideline. Uh, a little bit about GI bleeding. I mean, GI bleeding is a fantastic part of our speciality. It really is the reason to be a gastroenterologist. It combines a lot of our skills. The cases come out of nowhere. They make it all of a sudden that bleeder on the end of your list makes a, a boring day very exciting. And, and it involves a lot of interdisciplinary coordination. And of course, there's no NDT for GI bleeding. You have to make the decisions there and then and get on with it. Now, that being said, lower GI bleeding has always been the poor cousin of upper GI bleeding. Slightly less evidence, slightly less, uh, I think, to do for the endoscopist, less common. And I think this has been widely recognized now, and so it has come into the fore. And I think there are two things that really drove the creation of a, of a national guideline, and that was the NCPOD report, uh, the National Confidential Inquiry on Perioperative Deaths in 2015, and then a national audit, which was published in 2018. So a little bit of background. The NCPOD uh, report in 2015 highlighted a few things about lower GI bleeding. There were no guidelines available. Uh, they thought that an initial endoscopy was often done inappropriately, uh, and colonoscopy is often done too slowly in delayed discharge. They also commented that the care was a bit of a mess, and they made these recommendations. They said the traditional separation of care for upper and lower GI bleeding between physicians and surgeons should stop, and all hospitals should have an integrated service for GI bleeds. They also said that all patients presented with a major bleed should be discussed within an hour with a consultant on call for GI bleeding. It's difficult to argue with any of these. And they said that all patients should have a documented re-bleed plan. The, uh, the National Audit in 2018 was very extensive and, and actually conducted by National Blood and Transplant because a, a huge proportion, about 20% of all transported, uh, transplanted blood or transfused blood, is for GI bleeding. And they found that only 2% of patients presented in shock, but uh, one in four were transfused. Uh, the diagnosis, perhaps fairly obvious, uh, and actually very little therapy going on, both endoscopy and embolization. Only 0.2% need surgery, yet all these patients come in under surgeons. <coughs> Uh, median length of stay of three days, a lot of patients staying longer, uh, and then some other figures there. So the National GI Bleeding uh, uh, Guideline was published at the start of this year. Uh, it made the uh, New England Journal of Medicine reviews. I only put that up there because that's the only way I'm ever getting in there, that's for sure. Uh, but I think it does, uh, it shows that there's been a re general recognition that there hasn't been enough guidance in the past. So this is the algorithm, and I'm going to talk through this with reference to a specific case. So this is a real case, not made up for the uh, conference, as they are sometimes. This is a 79-year-old lady. She has two days of rectal bleeding. It's initially self-limiting, but it comes back, so she comes to hospital. She's got no GI history. But significantly, three weeks ago, she had an end STEMI and had two stents placed and was put on clopidogrel and aspirin. 
and she's got a few risk factors for ischemic heart disease. But she's pretty fit, she mobilizes well. So on examination, she's perhaps a little bit hypotensive for a hypertensive lady, uh, nothing else to find on examination. She's anemic with a hemoglobin of 8.8 uh, and her urea is normal, so it's all pointing towards a lower GI bleed. Now, definitions of lower GI bleeding, actually the textbook says any bleeding distal to the ligament of trites, and that's an utterly useless definition. No one walks into hospital saying I'm bleeding distal to my ligament of trites, doctor. <laughs> so really it's just bleeding that looks like it might be from the lower GI tract, and that includes a lot of patients with melina and a negative endoscopy. Uh, the etiology, fairly self-explanatory, but it's worth noting that a significant proportion have actually got upper GI bleeding. The more unstable the patient is, the more likely it is to be an upper GI uh, cause. And a lot of these patients might have small bowel bleeding, which although lower GI gets a bit more complicated. Lower GI bleeding is actually on the rise. This is a survey published, uh, some academic work published recently, showing there's been a 25% increase in lower GI bleeding and a bit of a decrease in upper GI bleeding. Um, and that perhaps is because we're using more um, anticoagulant medications, etc. The natural history, uh, a lot of patients re-bleed. The mortality isn't nearly as high as upper GI bleeding, but it's significant. So uh, here we go. This is our patient. Uh, and what we say, the first thing to do in the guideline is you should calculate what's called the shock index. And this is basically a simple assessment as to whether the, uh, the patient is unstable or not. It's well validated in trauma, a little bit of work in GI bleeding. It's very simple. You just divide the heart rate by the systolic blood pressure. Uh, if that figure uh, is greater than one, they're likely to be unstable with active bleeding, and they go down the right-hand side there. Uh, if they're stable, you calculate a risk score and decide whether they're going to be discharged or not. Now, risk scoring in lower GI bleeding, everyone can name the Rockle score and the Blatchford score, so it's less common. Uh, this score was actually derived from the national audit. It's the Oakland score, uh, and it's very simple, some very simple parameters, really weighted towards the haemoglobin, but this score identified a, a cohort of patients that were admitted that actually could be discharged with a 95% chance of a safe discharge. The National uh, Lower GI Bleeding Audit, again, it shows that a lot of people are transfused unnecessarily. Nice transfusion triggers. These have been around for a while, so a trigger of seven and a target of seven to nine. Uh, or if they've got comorbidity, like our lady here, a trigger of eight and comorbidity um, and a target of eight to ten. So the management of this lady, she comes in under a surgical team, because it's lower GI bleeding. She has a bit of fluid resuscitation. The bleeding stops. She's not transfused because she doesn't hit the nice uh, triggers. And she is discussed with a consultant on call for GI bleeds. Discussed with cardiology, dual antiplatelet uh, therapy continued because uh, stent thrombosis is a disaster. So then we come down to the $64,000 question. When should she have a colonoscopy? Now this has been uh, researched uh, a lot uh, and several meta-analyses published. Here's one of them. Uh, and essentially, there is no great advantage to urgent colonoscopy. This came around in about 2000. A New England Journal paper was published uh, that seemed to say we should be get doing these patients very rapidly and doing colonoscopy in the middle of the night, and that hasn't really been borne out. Uh, there's no difference in the major um, indicators, but there is earlier discharge and lower costs. These are all the randomized trials of urgent colonoscopy, and essentially what it shows is that you find a, a definitive source more often, uh, and perhaps deliver a bit more therapy, but no, make no uh, inroads into the major endpoints. Interestingly, when you look at all these, there is a bit of extra re-bleeding uh, if you do these patients early, and that's something that, again, perhaps weighs against uh, prepping these patients really quickly and doing the colonoscopy very quickly. So our patient here, uh, she's admitted, and the phrase we've used in the guideline is colonoscopy on the next available list, uh, which is fairly open-ended, but I think realistic. So, she bleeds again on the ward. Uh, she becomes a bit hypotensive. She's now got a positive shock index, active bleeding. 
Now, the next move, I'm not going to uh, do any fancy uh, questions because I haven't got time. I've got to finish in 12 minutes, I keep being told. Um, so, uh, what we recommend is you go for a CTA. There's lots of uh, evidence to suggest that CTA is very accurate and very uh, uh, sensitive to active bleeding. So, the patient has a CTA, and there is the little flush uh, down in the cecum. Uh, so, she's actively bleeding from the right side of the colon. So, CTA positive, next move, surgery, IR, or prep for urgent colonoscopy. Now, I, interventional radiology versus colonoscopy, there are no comparative studies whatsoever, so it's really down to clinical judgment and availability, and I think this is where we hit some of the attitudes that gastroenterologists have towards uh, lower GI bleeding. Um, embolization is safe, but it's not completely safe. The complication rates come down, and actually this lady was being looked after by a colleague, and he said, oh, I'm just going to get IR to sort it out. And I said, well, hang on a minute, you know, she's 80, she's had a heart attack, we don't really want to make her cecum ischemic, she's not bleeding that quickly, why don't we just prep her and, uh, and get on with it? <clears throat> now, this is a nice paper, it shows the combination of CTA and colonoscopy. So all of these patients were randomised to either having an urgent CT uh, or not having an urgent CT and then having colonoscopy. And there was a higher detection rate uh, at colonoscopy, more therapy delivered. Not conclusive, but it clearly shows that the two things work well together. So here we are at this point here. <coughs> uh, we decide to go for a colonoscopy, uh, but it's an individual decision. It depends what's available. And I think at the moment it depends how keen your endoscopists are. Uh, so CTA positive. I go in with the colonoscope, and that's the familiar view that a lot of us get when we try to scope a lower GI bleeder. Lots of blood, and of course the traditional things you try and get above the bleeding and come back flushing looking for the bleeding. But of course I don't have to worry about that because I know where the bleeding is. So I can zoom around to the uh, right colon, and there's a little bleeding gilifoy lesion in the cecal pole. Uh, eject a bit of adrenaline, find out the bleeding point accurately, clip it, and uh, job done. So what therapy should we use in the colon? There isn't much evidence, to be honest. Uh, all modalities are possible, but it's important to know the correct settings and technique. Uh, interestingly, you can band ligate uh, bleeding diverticular. Uh, I'm just curious here, you know, we've got a huge range of experience. Hands up who's ever treated a bleeding diverticular endoscopically. And keep your hands up if you've done it more than once. Yeah, twice? <laughs> a few times, yeah. So it's a really quite a rare event, but it's good to know what you can do. The Japanese like banding them uh, around on the right side of the colon. It's a bit of a clumsy technique because you have to come out and go back in again. You can use bipolar, uh, and this was the original paper in, in the New England Journal by Dennis Jensen, uh, but you have to turn the power down and use much less pressure than you would in the upper GI tract and shorter pulses. Uh, in the guideline, what we say is you should probably just go for adrenaline and clipping. It's widely available, everyone's experienced with it. Um, this is uh, just an example. So we see quite a lot of post-polypectomy bleeding. This is a, a case from 2011. Now, in the olden days, we'd have thought that's a great result, post-polypectomy. It's only a small polyp, but I've given it a good fry. There's no way that's bleeding. Look at that. But, of course, that's an appalling result. That should be cold snared. Uh, no need to use diathermy. And sure enough, the patient comes back a week later, and by then, the defect, because of the, de the dead tissue, has expanded. There's a big visible vessel there had a really quite big bleed, easy to inject a bit of adrenaline first uh, and then put some clips on. I think angiodysplasia in the cecum, now this is a case from only two weeks ago actually, another patient who'd had an end STEMI a few weeks before, large angiodysplasia in the cecum, really quite a lot of bleeding um, and I think uh, iatrogenic injury from APC is really quite common. So these can be lifted uh, just like you would for an EMR and then treated, you can be a bit more aggressive. So the highlights of the uh, GI bleeding guideline Think about the shock index. It's a good way to persuade your radiologist to do the CTA. 
Think about scoring and assessment, uh, and the, the scoring's changing quite quickly in the literature. You just have to decide what, how you adopt it. And of course, it's an aid to decision-making, not absolute. <coughs> CTA, if unstable, to localise the site and then make a choice between endoscopy and radiology. But don't f forget about endoscopy. We can be useful. Nice transfusion triggers save the blood because it's very expensive, and in fact, it doesn't do patients any good being transfused unnecessarily. And get that colonoscopy done on the next available list, uh, and that will get the patient out quickly. Okay, so uh, there's the guideline in its entirety. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs> John, thanks very much. Thanks for sticking to time and being very concise. Very clear messages there. Um, I want to start with a couple of really basic things. Now, your patient, who was sh she's in casualty, she's been resuscitated. Mm. The casualty want her out of casualty because they've got, you know, they, they've got no space. Who should she be admitted under, the surgeons or the gastroenterologists? Well, I, I think uh, ideally she... Let's ask the audience. Yeah, yeah. Surgeons or gastroenterologists? Put your hands up if you think surgeons. Gastroenterologists? Yeah. Mm, so there's a... But, you know, all, all around what do you country, think? Give you us the answer. Yeah, patients with bright red bleeding are being admitted under surgical teams because that's the traditional division of labour. Uh, and actually what hospitals need to come round to is having an integrated GI bleeding service. It doesn't actually matter who they come in under as long as the coordination is right and the care is right. Uh, certainly at St Mary's, the gastroenterologists still do general medicine and we can't be on call every day for bleeding. Um, but on the other hand, there is a ward consultant who is uh, available and wants to be called for every major bleed, so can then coordinate. But I, I, it's not ideal. I think they should come in under uh, a gastro team, uh, team. So we've got a question in the audience. Hi, I'm a surgeon. In our hospital, we don't have interventional radiology, so that's off the board. We had a similar case that the bleeding or the person uh, giving the bleeding service said colonoscopy, we can't do that, there is too much blood. Mm. So she ended up with a right hemi because the CT angio was luckily showing at least a place. Yeah. So I was wondering how many hospitals don't have interventional radiology and no gastro who is keen to go well, so, in. Yeah. I've, I've got the, there's some figures about that actually assessed in the audit, and 50% uh, of UK hospitals at the time of the audit did not have 24-hour interventional radiology. And so the re strong recommendation is that networks are formed, and one of, the, one of the recommendations in the guideline, which I didn't have time to mention, is that every hospital should ensure that it's part of a network with agreed <coughs> referral pathways for, for interventional radiology. So, yeah, it's difficult, but you have to prep the patient. There's no such thing as too much blood. Uh, you can prep the patient and, and, and try and stop the bleeding. <coughs> now, yeah, that patient should have been prepped as much as you can do, and then it should have, they should have been scoped in theatre, uh, and if the colonoscopist couldn't have sorted out, you then proceed to surgery. That, that's what should happen. So, John, just to drill down on the endoscopy, how many of these patients would you do an upper GI endoscopy on as well? So it, it really depends on the presentation. You know, if they're unstable uh, and they're pouring red blood, uh, then, then actually C either CTA or gastroscopy is the, uh, are both appropriate. Um, but you should do the gastroscopy. It's very quick. Any more questions from the audience? Just a final one about, about blood transfusion. I mean, the, the, one of the messages from the blood transfusion service is that we're over-transfusing, and we, that may, may not actually be doing our patients any favour. But then you have the flip side of that, where you have a patient say the haemoglobin comes back as 10, but they're actually actively bleeding and unstable. Mm. Do, you do you never transfuse? 
uh, unless the haemoglobin has dropped? You've got a documented drop in haemoglobin. I mean, I think d discussing that, trying to separate uh, when you're discussing cases, that initial management and, trans and resuscitation is very difficult. So, in fact, they, the triggers are their post-resuscitation, post-stabilisation triggers and targets. So clearly, if the patient's unstable and they've got a haemoglobin of eight, you're going to start resuscitating them, but fluid resuscitate, and then you're going to take another blood and then make your transfusion decision. Uh, One final question, yes. Just in this case, if the angiodysplasia found, but it's not the cause of the bleeding, would you treat it? Yeah, I, I think if, in this patient, <coughs> if you found any angiodysplasia, you should treat it. Um, we don't treat angiodysplasia if we just find it, you know, opportunistically on a screening colonoscopy. Uh, because there's risks, but if there is a significant history of anemia or bleeding, then yeah, treat it. Johnny, we need to move on. Thank you very much.